About a year ago, the security clearance backlog reached its record high of 725,000. Now that inventory looks much different. The Office of Personnel Management and its National Background Investigations Bureau have tried a wide variety of methods to bring down that backlog, and they've worked. In part one of an interview with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, NBIB Director Charlie Phelan explains why embracing new technology and reimagining the process altogether is leading them towards success. You may recall that uh, we've been talking about this for a long time and that the high point, our worst day, was a, a year or so ago in April where the inventory was sitting at 725,000 cases in, in the inventory. As of Monday of this week, the number is now down to uh, 424,000. So we've crossed that threshold of more than 300,000 drop. And I think what's more important on that is that we're not heading for zero. We believe that our working inventory at about 200,000 at any given time keeps us within the what are our projected timelines uh, for getting cases completed and is sort of a normal course of business. So we are getting a lot closer to that, and I'm pretty happy with where all that is going. I would say that that number, that decrease in cases is across all sorts of our case types, whether it is national security investigations or suitability credentialing investigations for the federal government and for contractors. And what we're seeing is that drop in inventory is consistent across all of those sectors as well, both industry, government. Again, our the numbers are down. Our production is up. Our closed, cases closed per week is up about 14% over what it was this time last year. So all of this is against what I find another interesting number is that the number of new cases and new requests that we get in every week is up as well as against last year. So last year we were running about 50,000 new inquiries every week from various government agencies. Right now we're averaging about 56,000 every week. So we're getting more in and still being able to knock down that inventory. So I'm happy with those numbers. To be direct, what I'm not so happy with, although we're making good progress, is the timeliness of the delivery of these investigations. We have guidelines for the national security cases that give us some projected completion times and days. We aren't there yet, but what we are seeing is we take a look at at what are the leading indicators of progress in this area. Twofold, one is that sheer numbers, we're seeing the median time decreasing significantly, down as much as 40% for one case type for completion dates. So that's a good leading indicator. The other is our work management unit, which is a a place where cases would sit until they're being processed, is way down. It's probably down 60-70% right now. And in some cases, it's down to almost zero in some regions. So that's a a pretty good progress on that. You mentioned you're receiving more cases this time this year than maybe previously. Do you know why that is at all? A couple of things. uh, Some are situational. One thing which is very situational is that the uh, Census Bureau is hiring people to take census, so that's a uh, once-every-10-year problem. But that's not a significant piece of that, that increase, it's, but it is some part of it. We are seeing hiring up in both the federal sector and in the, in the industrial sector, and part of that is probably new contracts coming in in the workforce. I know that you've talked about this often, but let's remind some of the listeners of some of the things that you've done to reduce the backlog. I think it's a combination of multiple things. I mean, you've talked about hiring more people. You've talked about new technology to help you do this work a little bit more quickly. But what else, what in particular do you think has contributed to the success that you've made over the past year? Yeah, let me let me cover some of that because one of the, the – uh, things people were looking for when we started up this organization back in fall of 2016 was sort of a magic potion as to how to make this disappear immediately. It didn't exist, but we had a plan, and that plan is still a viable plan. We put it in force in early 2017 after we got through those holidays and uh, put some of these things in motion. 
the real momentum build began just about a year or so ago with a number of things coming together at about that same time here. But first of all, we talked about building up the workforce. We have built up that capacity both on our staff side and on the contract investigator side with a lot of help from the suppliers on that and built it up to where it needs to be to knock down the backlog and maintain the level of effort that is needed to get the cases done today. So in addition to building that capacity, that workforce on both universes has uh, become better skilled and more mature as time goes on, and so their productivity gets better. And then we talked about being able to use them more efficiently on things. One thing that has really proven to be very, very helpful to us is the ability to do what we call hubbing, and that is identify locations where we can bring work together and bring agents together to be more efficient. The old model was kind of one case, one agent, and they would follow it through. We can parse out pieces to different agents in different locations, but more importantly is to bring the work to the agent as opposed to the agent having to go to the work. We started working this on the uh, civilian agency side, worked more closely with the uh, military side, uh, Air Force and Navy in particular have been helpful in this, and then more recently with the, uh, the industry base that is out there and the work we have to do with them. It has been a tremendous partnership. There are certain areas in the country where there's a whole lot of work where we can find this to be very, very helpful, you know, picking randomly Southern California for the military, places in the, along the, the uh, um, Space Coast uh, in Florida and in the Midwest for, for industry. We've also leveraged a lot of technology, something really simple such as can we use secure video telecommunications? Can we use telephones to resolve certain issues? You guys know I've been in the security business a long time. We're scared to death of telephones and VTCs and that kind of stuff. And it took a little while to get over that, but we are over that. What this has done is really improved access to get information resolved. Uh, it has improved our ability to reach out to places that are harder to get otherwise. And so we've seen a tremendous amount of progress with that. At the same time, we are, in the technology side, we're piloting some robotics to be able to pull in information without humans being involved to collect it electronically. At the same time, we still have a challenge with getting some records that just are not easily available electronically. In the law enforcement world, it is literally and figuratively all over the map. There are some places where it is easy to get to it. We can get to it electronically. Probably the easiest one to mention is our ability to get into FBI records, and, and that cooperation has been tremendous. But as we get out into the across the country, some places are harder to get to and required to have an agent to go to those locations and find that information. So. So we're still working on that, um, but we, uh, we hope to be able to continue making more progress against that sort of a thing. And then sort of the last piece that has had a significant impact along with the other things we've done is being able to leverage some of the early returns out of an effort that the Director of National Intelligence and the Director of OPM put in place, Trusted Workforce 2.0. And that is really a look at in the year 2019 and beyond – what does it mean to place trust in somebody and what does it mean to continue having trust in somebody? The model we're using is a, is a little old. It's not the wrong model, but there are different ways to look at this sort of a thing. And we have been able to leverage some of the early returns from that effort against the way we do our business today. And without going into a lot of detail here, it has, it has had a, a very good impact on our ability to be more efficient, really to focus our energy and focus the questions as opposed to things that may be not quite as important in the, in the process here. So putting all that, that together and looking at the future that says uh, we're going to look more at, at a concept of continuous vetting as opposed to periodic vetting of individuals, this will allow us as a government and as a country to find problems sooner and as the problems are developing and before they get to breach critical mass and perhaps mitigate those problems before they get out of hand here. In truth, it will be probably a little more effort 
on in some places in the in this ecosystem that we don't have effort in right now and take some effort off of some others but in the end the need for that human interaction for people to go out and talk and interview people and everything else is still going to be there and going to be a critical piece and particularly both collection of information and more importantly determination of what is that information telling us the analysis that says do I trust or not trust this individual anymore so I'm curious, what exactly changed to get you to say, yes, we should use some of this technology that maybe we've been a little hesitant to use in the past? So the discomfort level was, part of it, again, was maybe genetic, is that, that telecommunications sometimes are not secure. So we have found ways to have those communications in a more secure manner and be able to reach out to people. And it was that against a realization that it actually began as we started looking at people we needed to talk to that were in war zones. And there was not an easy way to send an agent out to have an investigation interview with somebody who's sitting in a forward operating base and pick your favorite country. And so using this kind of technology to be able to reach out in a very rudimentary fashion really gave us the idea that this is something we can really leverage and expand on this. And taking to where it is today, and we're going to continue working, we've actually set up hubs, virtual hubs, where we have, we have investigators sitting in, in locations that are able to reach out within a, an agency or a company all the way out to their infrastructure and talk to people that we need to talk to in that company. And the realization of what we could, we could accomplish, this is really what that light bulb was that went off in our heads. So I know that you all have been preparing for the transfer of people, technology, these processes that you've been talking about from your agency at OPM to the Defense Department. We finally got that executive order yes. out the door. <laughs> um, so the first date that's associated with all of this is, is June 24th. And that's when the Office of Personnel Management and the Defense Department are supposed to sign an agreement. I'm not sure that you're in the position to tell us, you know, what's going to be in the agreement or, or, you know, what we might expect from that. But can you give us an update on, on yeah. what is in that agreement and what specifically that agreement will accomplish? Yeah. So the agreement is is between the Secretary of Defense and the Director of OPM as to what will governance of this transition period look like. How will we make determinations? How will we decide what moves to where and how this all moves and how that will be governed between June 24th and what is the actual target date for when this enterprise becomes a part of the Department of Defense, which is October 1st. And so the written agreement lays out the parameters of what's going to happen in there. There's nothing surprising in there. It's who, who talks to who, who makes decisions. And how will we move resources? How will we move funding? And how do we accomplish that? And there's a lot of moving parts to this thing, as you can imagine, because we've got to transfer thousands of people and change their uh, change their status from an OPM employee to DOD employee. We have to move contracts. We have to move the funding. We work on a revolving fund. The uh, Department of Defense is setting up a working capital fund, which will mirror our revolving fund to continue that sort of activity. And so the June 24th date is is the target for this written agreement. The reality is we have been operating as though this is existent for a long time because, as, as you pointed out, I've been speaking for months in the future tense about an executive order, and all of a sudden, there it is. It's been signed. That's great. But we have been working really collaboratively, collectively between the OPM and the Department of Defense and others that are involved here, too, to make sure that as this thing transitions, we do not create problems where none exist today and that we can are able to continue the momentum to keep both in terms of, the, of the, how we deal with the inventory and, and how we are, invent, are bringing this trusted workforce 2.0 piece into it. And then how do we meld this into what is this larger agency 
that is going to be serving the whole of government for national security and, and suitability investigations without damaging any of the uh, of the customer base out there. And I know that you've said before that moving the NBIB workforce, which consists of federal employees, but then also the contracted investigators that do this work for you as well. I think you've used the phrase, you know, they're going to wear different T-shirts on October 1st or something like that. But what more can you tell us about how the workforce will transition over and, and, and how are you communicating with them about what this will look like. Tons of questions like that. And I'm, I'm thinking as we as we talk here that maybe I need to change it since it'll be October, maybe to windbreakers rather mm-hmm. than T-shirts. But there are lots of questions in people's heads, and then that's very natural sort of a thing. And um, there's still some questions that are unanswered, but they aren't big questions. They're more technical questions, like what kind of paperwork am I going to get and that sort of thing. But uh, we have been communicating uh, on at least a weekly basis uh, with our workforce, telling them what's coming. Here's what we know. Here's a couple of things we still don't know, but what my belief is that certainty of what I know, if I'm an employee, is better than uncertainty. And so to the extent we can clear up any uncertainty about things, sort of a myth busters in some cases, because rumors start and we've got to go, to go back and say, no, that's not really what happens here. So lots of communication on all levels, whether it is me sending notes out to the workforce, whether it is a website that we have that, that puts information out to folks um, or other forms of communications. And frankly, just getting out and talking to people and hearing what they have to say because it's it's a two-way conversation. We've opened up channels for them to ask us questions and incorporate those answers into that communication. But certainty is – even if it's not the answer they want, certainty is better than the uncertainty of what's going on here. But I I think we've pretty much locked in the things that I think people are most concerned about, which is, A, do I still have a job? Yes, everybody has a job. Is payroll going to be affected? Leave going to be affected? Benefits going to be affected? The answer is generally no, that pay and everything stays as it is and continues. So, again, we have to keep communicating, though. It, it was the sibilis or the, uh, the statement that uh, you can never over-communicate. I think this is one of those cases when that's actually true. Will the MBIB employees and, and contractors continue to work in the same building? Are you all moving to the Pentagon or some other DOD facility, or is that something that you're still all trying to work out? So – there's really no space to move us to at this point. And I say us, the, the sort of the NBIB central or location. The reality is, though, that out of our Washington, D.C. office, this is a distinct minority of the people that are working in this enterprise. Two major operation centers are in Boyers, Pennsylvania, and in at Fort Meade. And these are where it, easily 1,000 people up in uh, Boyers and hundreds of people up in Fort Meade. And those sites stay intact. They stay where they are. And that's a clear commitment on all of that. In the field, we have a dozens and dozens of field offices. Department of Defense has dozens and dozens of field offices in many locations, many areas. We actually occupy the same city for sure. In some cases, we are in the same building, maybe maybe floors apart in a federal building somewhere. So over time, we will look for opportunities to where can we merge these organizations from a real estate standpoint. But there's no immediate need to, to do that on day one because we've got leases on these facilities and everything else. You mentioned the opportunities for employees. Can you expand on that, how perhaps some of these investigators who have been doing this work for a while, <clears throat> maybe they even did this work back when DOD originally had this program. Right, right. What changes might they see with their work or what opportunities might they have to maybe do something a little different? Right. So there is a, uh, a big chunk of what the Defense Security Service does today is work directly with industry to make sure that both their facilities, 
that are producing information or producing products for the government and their IT systems underpinning all that are secure without going into too much of their strategy. But one of the big things they've talked about is technology protection, tech protect, the concept of delivering a product by, from industry uncompromised. There's a lot of work and a lot of effort that goes into that. Somebody today that is doing investigations understands what security is about from that sense of what is a trusted person. Taking that, inf- that background and putting it into this kind of outreach to industry and being able to talk to folks in industry about what their population looks like, what's happening in their facilities, how they're secured, gives that individual, that employee, an opportunity to broaden their knowledge base of the business. And I've always said that while they're discrete parts of what is a security program, it all has to work together, and they all sort of feed off of each other. So taking that theory conversely, as somebody who's been working closely with industry for years in Defense Security Service, talking about secure facilities, talking about secure IT, giving them an opportunity to go out and talk to the people and at the front end and middle end of that do we trust you kind of a thing is gives them an opportunity as well. I mean, it, just, it will broaden opportunities for people to broaden their horizons considerably. And a, a quick follow-up on that. Are you planning for, you know, potentially more training for these people or development opportunities, or is that a little farther down the road as you make this transition and figure out exactly who might be able to do different kinds of work? Yeah. So we haven't picked out specifically who might be able to do different kinds of sure. work. But but one of the uh, – absolutely, the, one of the first things out of the shoot where we saw that there's an ability to blend things together, and they've been working very, very closely, is the uh, defense training activity in uh, Maryland – our uh, investigation training activity up in Pennsylvania, an accredited FLETC facility. The two of them have been just joined at the hip since the day we even talked about doing this. And this goes back months and months and months, basically last summer, maybe even before then. And they've got this thing already figured out. How can we create tomorrow's security officer? You know, last time we talked, you mentioned the IT systems, the case management system that you all have. It's a legacy Mm -hmm. system. And that DOD would continue to use it while they build out NBIS. At the time, I think you said we're still working out kind of how that'll work. Is there anything new that you can offer on that front? I mean, perhaps how much DOD will reimburse to use that system and some of the other systems as you're making this transition? So part of this written agreement is, and this is not controversial at all, is that for a period of time, the Department of Defense will have to buy back these case management services and the related services from the Office of Personnel Management until such time as this new system, National Background Investigation Services, is ready to handle case management from soup to nuts, from, from ingest through completion of the case. So DOD understands that, and they are, I will say, I'm going to start using the word we, we are prepared collectively to buy back that service from OPM beginning October 1st, at roughly the same rate as NBIB invests in that right now with OPM's uh, CIO. So uh, the actual number is still a little bit in negotiation, but it, it will not, the costs won't go up because of this transfer, nor do they magically disappear because of the transfer. It's just simply that the, the funding that we, we spend today on our, with our CIO will be roughly the same amount that, that uh, when we move into DCSA, we'll be spending with this OPM CIO as well. And then related to that, what are you all doing now to maintain and secure that legacy IT system until DOD is ready with INBIS and you're essentially ready to retire the legacy system? Short answer is everything we can. Mm-hmm. This is our workhorse system. So look at it from two, two aspects. One is functionality. If this thing doesn't work, I don't want to say we're out of business, but it really has an impact. If something glitches in it, it's a problem. So we've got to keep this up and running. And there's a recognition that, at least in the short term, we may have to make some minor investments in new capabilities within that process. 
So keeping this up and running and functional for, uh, for that period of time until NBIS comes online completely is, is going to be critical. The second piece is, not inconsequentially, is there's a lot of data in there that has obviously been attractive to some folks and continues to be attractive to some folks, we agree. And we need to make sure that this system is as secure as we can get it so that we don't go through what we went through back in 2015. To that extent, I mean, literally yesterday I was having a conversation with our chief information security officer about what we're doing and getting a full briefing, and and they are on top of this. They recognize that uh, the absolute need to keep this information secure. And as we talk about how does information move between these two systems and we go through the transition to NBIS, that's clearly on everybody's in the front of everybody's minds as well. So it's both functionality, it has to continue, and we've got to keep it secure. You've also talked about the contracts that you all currently have and using the FAR to move them to DOD. You know, some folks in industry have had questions about maybe current NBIB contracts that the solicitation period is already underway or proposals are already out there. Can you speak about what might happen to those particular contracts or anything? The particular ones, not so much, but I can tell you that for those that are in force and will be enforced during the transition period um, through October 1st, we will insist that and we will continue to ensure that those continue unabated. If something is in those that are in competition right now, those that are in in solicitation, there's specific questions that a company has that is part of that solicitation or, or contemplating it, depending on where it is in the process, they should really call the contracting officer that they're dealing with to get some ask those questions, and we'd be happy to entertain them at any time. But getting to specific ones in this would be kind of difficult. I wanted to ask you about the October 1st date. You've mentioned that while the executive order maybe came out three months ago or something at this point, you all have been preparing for this for much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Do you all envision anything that might hold up that October 1st deadline? First thing that came to my mind is anything that might happen with the budget, a continuing resolution, yeah. anything like that that might complicate things? And if so, how might you address yeah. that? We've actually been thinking about that. So the if you turn the camera back to earlier this year when we went through the furlough, NBIB works on a revolving fund. So we were literally not affected. The goal here is to transfer sufficient funding to the Department of Defense to their working capital fund prior to October 1st so that they have the funding in place and can operate in the same manner and not be affected by either a continuing resolution or worse, a furlough, if something like that were to occur. And so I don't see that as being a a, a huge uh, speed bump on this thing. So to us, that's that's actually good news. That's a first for for maybe some. (laughs) Yes. Charlie Phelan, director of the National Background Investigations Bureau, speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. 